Good evening, all. My name is John Mannion, and the topic before us this evening is discipline, true discipline. Can true discipline lead to freedom? Now, to start with, let me ask you a question. How many people would like to lead a life of discipline? How many of you find that attractive? Yeah, would be some. Must be more. <laughs> well, that's exactly it, isn't it? We don't find the idea of discipline attractive at all. Yet this is what the Shankaracharya says about discipline. Now, the Shankaracharya, for those who are not aware of it, is a sage to whom the school went to ask its questions and has been going to ask questions since the 1960s. And his answers have proved to be very useful over the years. This is what he says about discipline. Discipline is more like a medicine which gives happiness. It acts as a tonic to strengthen one with happiness, peace and contentment. Discipline simply means moving freely. The fruit of discipline is truth, consciousness and bliss. Now that is definitely at odds with the way most of us look at discipline. We sometimes see discipline as confinement and a burden. When we plan holidays, the idea is often freedom. And by that we mean getting away from discipline or anything to do with it. So there's this substantial difference between the way we see discipline and the way the wise see discipline. Now, we're going to start by looking at some of these misconceptions, just to get them out of the way before we start looking at what true discipline is. The first of these common misconceptions about discipline is that it is something that someone does to someone else. This leads us firstly to view discipline as an imposition of control from the outside, therefore involving loss of freedom. It makes it unattractive. Secondly, if we are responsible for the welfare of others, and children are a good example of this, it leads us to impose a discipline as an external restraint. This can be temporarily effective, but it will fail in the long run. Have any of you heard the story of uh, the idea of holding a ball under water? It comes up sometimes in the material in the school. If you want to hold a football underwater, or to keep it underwater, you have to push it down and maintain pressure on it. And once you remove that pressure or control, what happens? The ball pops up. Well, a prisoner following a strict prison regime is not suddenly 
a man or woman of admirable discipline. If there is some aspect of the nature which is controlled by a kind of discipline that must be maintained by external pressure, it is going to revert to uncontrolled behavior once this external restraint is removed. True discipline is an inside job. True discipline is not a punishment. It is a gift. In the case of a child, it would enable it to grow up with the capacity to live a disciplined life, to do what is right even when no one is looking. It is this inner capacity that really makes a difference in the long run, not some external action or force. It is a common error to equate discipline with control, and that the more disciplined one is, the more controlled one's responses would be. Now this paints the picture of the disciplined man or woman as being cautious, reserved, certainly not quite free, not the life of the party. But mere control is not true discipline. For example, an over-controlled response is as much a lack of true discipline as an under-controlled response. If we come to see discipline as moving freely, then this error of confusing control with discipline can be clearly seen. From this viewpoint, the quietest person in the room could actually be the least disciplined person in the room. Another common idea is that the foundation of discipline is what a person does. Behavior. Now, while behavior may demonstrate discipline or the lack of it, true discipline is based on what you are, not on what you do. So, true discipline, though it may be made visible in behavior, is not founded in physical action, but true knowledge. Knowledge of what I truly am. The Shankaracharya says that discipline is the naturalization of one's true nature. Ralph Waldo Emerson put that idea as follows. At the top or at the bottom of all illusions, I set the cheat, which still leads us to work and live for appearances, in spite of our conviction in all sane hours, that it is what we really are that avails with friends, with strangers, and with fate or fortune. There is an idea that discipline is hard. It is true that when moving from an unbalanced situation to a balanced one, some effort is needed. It requires attention, energy, commitment. We may be required to admit to some shortcoming. It may be challenging at the beginning, but that is not a function of discipline, 
rather of our willingness to follow it, and the degree to which our lives have become governed by desire. We can see discipline almost as a life sentence. I have to become a disciplined man or woman. That can't happen. This idea just paints a picture of a life full of restraint and struggle. If one was to be truly disciplined with regard to some practice, in time the effort required to maintain it would reduce until eventually it became naturalized and effortless. The Shankaracharya points out that practice in due course turns into nature, or as we more commonly express it, practice makes perfect. Emerson said of this, it is as easy for the strong man to be strong as it is for the weak to be weak. It's worth noting on this idea of practice that with regard to philosophical practice at least, we are always practicing something. There's no need to reserve a special time for practice. Whatever I'm doing now, that's what I'm practicing. So there's no shortage of time. Some people think that discipline is vocational. So a life guided by discipline is special. And I, therefore, need somehow to be special in order to have such a life. It's for the select few and maybe I think of some particular group dedicated to a strict code, maybe a monastic life or something like that. Again, this is not what true discipline is about. It is not something that is done by someone to someone, controlled behavior, a restriction on freedom, or something contrary to our so-called natural inclinations. So what is it? That's what it's not. Let's return to the Shankaracharya on this. The meaning of discipline is to retain balance and touch nothing. Fullness of discipline ultimately means being faithful in oneself. A disciplined mind is very peaceful. With discipline comes measure, and with measure you use your body properly and usefully. Discipline simply means moving freely. This indicates discipline might actually be an attractive way of life. Moving freely. Who doesn't want to move freely? But if this really is it, why aren't more of us living with true discipline? When we say that we find discipline hard or unattractive, 
we are actually struggling with some difficulty that arises in opposition to it, some misconception of what it is, not with true discipline itself. No one struggles against moving freely or against truth, consciousness and bliss. The number one difficulty we meet with regard to true discipline is desire. In the Bhagavad Gita, one of the central pieces of Eastern scripture, we are told that desire is the constant enemy of the wise. Constant enemy. With desire for enjoyment of pleasure comes avoidance of pain and displeasure. For how much of the time are we responding to desire or aversion? How often do we make decisions based on what we like and what we don't like? And what effect does this have on our lives? Well, if the mind is taken by desire or aversion, then the body follows. And some action is undertaken or avoided in order to fulfill it. This kind of easy giving in to desires, aversions and distractions is a condition we often associate with being undisciplined. So, some evening you make a plan. You say, right, I'm going to get up early in the morning. I'm going to do this block of work and then I'll have the rest of the day free to give to this. And you plan it all out. And it looks great on paper. And next morning, and some kind of semi-conscious fog, we reevaluate the whole thing, and oh well, it can wait. Does that sound at all familiar? Well, the Bhagavad Gita describes the path of desire and its consequences as follows. When a man thinks of objects, attachment for them arises. From attachment arises desire, from desire arises wrath, from wrath arises delusion, from delusion failure of memory, and from failure of memory loss of conscience. From loss of conscience he is utterly ruined. In more recent times Emerson also paints a very gloomy outlook for those with poor discipline. It is interesting that in this quotation, he equates lack of discipline with breaking the laws. He said, the visions of good men are good. It is the undisciplined will that is whipped with bad thoughts and bad fortunes. When we break the laws, we lose our hold on the central reality. Like sick men in hospitals, we change only from bed to bed, from one folly to another. And it cannot signify much 
what becomes of such castaways, wailing, stupid, comatose creatures, lifted from bed to bed, from the nothing of life to the nothing of death. It's fairly sharp stuff, isn't it? Habit. Habit is often quoted as an obstacle to discipline. Any of you ever referred to habit as the reason for not being disciplined about something? A habit is some recurring pattern of behaviour that is acquired through frequent repetition. Overcoming habit requires deliberate effort. We all know this. It's become mechanical, almost automatic. But we do need to apply intelligence to the situation rather than just fighting the habit, as it were. One route is to cultivate a good habit that counters the other. I mean, we all may have heard of that. The best course to follow is to meditate and to adopt good company. Adopting good company does not mean avoiding friends or involvements with the world. But it is reasonable, firstly, not to put oneself in situations or company where the undesired behaviour is habitually drawn out. And secondly, it is reasonable to seek situations or company that help with your particular situation. Ultimately, any habit, insofar as it is mechanical, is not true discipline. True discipline would include being free to respond appropriately according to time, place and circumstance, and doing so independently of any habit, however good or bad or well practiced. And the only thing that brings this kind of freedom is truth. If I might digress here, I came across this just yesterday. And I thought I should include it. The Shankaracharya is speaking to somebody about faith. And he refers to it as the last post of transformation. But the key thing to look at is a little bit further on. He says, the principle is that only by long practice can this last post be burnt by the fire of mature discipline. It does not go away by any outside force. Just as if you pluck out weeds, they grow again until you take out all the roots hidden deep in the ground. By long persistence, persistent practice of disciplined work, the deep roots are burned slowly and when they are burned completely, then one can understand the uselessness of habit. In the end, it is up to the individual to decide once and for all that he is going to love only truth and leave the rest. And he must stand by it 
Only then is transformation possible. So it's an interesting piece with regard to habit. So why would I want true discipline or discipline in my life? What are the fruits? For example, if an athlete is not disciplined with regard to training, eating, sleeping, then he or she cannot perform at their best. If an army is not disciplined, it will not act with a single purpose and will fail and will prove a great menace to society. If a team of managers do not agree to subject themselves to the discipline of working for a common vision, then how can they expect that business to succeed? The various parts of the body must be disciplined within a system in order for it to function properly. So it is with the individual. Discipline allows us to gather our forces, to act as one, without conflicting aims and actions. Sometimes we find that we do have conflicting aims and actions. I may want to enjoy the pleasure of a particular action, but also the benefits of abstinence from that same action. Discipline enables an individual or a group to act as one, as though the aims and energies are unified, thus increasing efficiency and the possibility of success. Discipline is the key to moving freely. If I want to travel the roads freely in a car, I must follow the discipline of driving. If I want to be free to move in the water, I must learn the discipline of the swimmer. So in this sense, discipline is a practical, useful proposition. What would it be like, this working out of true discipline? What would it be like in the life? What would it feel like? Well, we do not always associate the word love with discipline, but true discipline is always full of love. When dealing with the events of life, there is often a hardness in our hearts and a harshness in our words that denies the experience and enjoyment of love. We criticize ourselves a lot. And yet, criticism is an utterly useless activity. Self-defeating wastes energy and saps enthusiasm. One interesting approach along these lines, which runs counter to the common view of discipline, is proposed by the psychologist Tony Humphreys. He describes discipline as treating others and myself with love and care. That is true discipline. There was at one time a poster in Garda stations, I don't know if they still have them up, but this poster had love thy neighbour as thyself written across it and then at the bottom a practical guide for road users. 
Now imagine for a moment what it would be like if all the drivers in the country practiced that. Practiced driving with an attitude of love and care for every other road user. Is that not the outcome that we are looking for, trying to achieve with regard to driver behavior, but seeking it through prescriptive measures, the holding the ball under the water approach? Enacting and enforcing more laws using fear, shame, shock advertising, and so on. More speed cameras, more enforcement. Indeed, it may be argued that the greater the lack of true discipline, the more laws society needs to enact in order to make up for it. These measures may now be necessary, but they are only needed because of the absence of this true discipline in the practice of driving. So could you decide now to drive with an attitude of love and care towards other road users and yourself? And what difference would it make? That's an, a practical experiment you can try out um, to test this idea of true discipline in driving. Having enough energy is a vital part of living an active, useful life. We're all familiar with the difficulty of facing into ordinary tasks when the mind or body is tired. How much more so when facing a task, situation or habit which we perceive as difficult? Lack of true discipline leads to wasteful use of energy and hence loss of efficiency and inability to avail of opportunity. Too tired, can't get to it. I need a rest, make another cup of tea. Well, the Shankaracharya had the following to say about discipline and energy. A common man earns his living and in doing so all his energies are sucked in such a degree that he cannot really look forward. This is the common life. Opposed to this, a man who has discrimination would be able to come out of this situation by conserving and producing energy. The discipline and knowledge keep him supplied with extra energies for proper use and multiply his resources. This multiplication of tapping resources and not wasting energy makes them come out of the mob and take leadership. They are confident, never disturbed, have a balanced disposition and patience and are always engaged in doing good. True discipline would bring about fullness of service and fulfillment of duty. This means that the need presented in the moment is met fully. There's no residue, nothing to carry forward. Responses would be based on the true need of the situation and not on some personal preference.
true discipline would mean that thought, word and deed would be aligned. And this would eliminate so much regret from our lives. I would not find myself thinking or saying one thing and doing another. With true discipline, there would be nothing to hide, no need to keep up an appearance. It takes an awful lot of effort to keep up appearances, and it will eventually fail as the energy fails. The Shankaracharya was asked how to know whether a spiritual aspirant had truly adopted the necessary discipline or was just putting on a show. It is possible to put on a show, isn't it? But his answer was that the test is constancy. A disciple who undergoes a proper discipline acquires a stillness in pursuit of it. The stillness and constancy of speech, feeling and action will reveal the truth or untruth in the nature of the disciple. So, another aspect of discipline which I found very interesting when I was starting to look at this subject was the idea of rhythm. To have true discipline is to connect with the natural rhythm of things. Now when we speak of rhythm, we're not just talking about the pace of life. It's the rhythm inherent in things and activities. A Sufi mystic called Hazrat Inayat Khan said, The rising and the setting of the sun, the waxing and the waning of the moon, the regular change of the tides in the sea, and the seasons as they come and go, all show rhythm. It is rhythm that makes the birds fly. It is rhythm that makes the creatures of the earth walk. Do you think a bird could fly without rhythm? Unless a runner finds his or her rhythm, he cannot sustain running for very long. If there are any sports fans here, you may have watched some of the Olympics recently. I saw the end of the women's marathon, and there's a Romanian lady who won it, and you could see over the last stretch, you could see the pain in her face. I don't know if anybody saw, saw that, but you could see the way her face showed this woman was in pain. But the commentator made an interesting comment. He said that at no time did she lose her form or her rhythm, and that that was what kept her going. So that was the rhythm, and he implied later that if that rhythm had been interrupted, if she stumbled, it would be very, very difficult to get it back. So maintaining the rhythm is what carried her through, through all that pain, that last mile, that last few miles. There's a natural rhythm in ordinary movement. You don't have to be running a marathon. I wasn't going to ask everybody to start running marathons to practice true discipline. But walking, sawing a piece of wood, 
climbing a stairs. We don't notice the rhythm normally, but try doing those activities without rhythm. It's a good way to test how important it is. Deliberately try to take the rhythm out of your movement and see what effect it has. It's very easy to try. And the, the result is, is utter chaos. And it looks very strange. So make sure, <laughs> make sure you draw the curtains. I know when I was young, I was raised on a farm, and we used to have this large saw for cutting logs. There's a handle at this end and a handle at maybe about 12 feet away, and a blade in the middle. And it was operated by two men. So one at each side, the log in the middle, and you move the saw over and back. Now the key to that, any, anybody familiar with that tool? Yeah? The key to that is rhythm, isn't it? If you don't have the rhythm, it just doesn't work. It's extremely difficult work then. But once you strike the rhythm, it is so easy. The saw just cuts the timber. So what is true discipline in the performance of an action? How do I access it? It has two parts. And it's like this. When you're dancing, it's easy to acknowledge that the music supplies the rhythm. And a dancer will follow or join with the rhythm. So the fundamental instruction for the dance is in the music. Yeah? Well, the same can be said of ordinary activity. The rhythm is in the activity, not in my head. The true discipline for each task must arise from within the task itself. Where else could it come from? The second part of this discipline and the performance of action must come from me, and that is the willingness to follow the discipline or the rhythm for that particular action. Emerson again put it like this, all things with which we deal preach to us. What is a farm but a mute gospel? Now the key to hearing this gospel is attention. Given that the true discipline for an action can be discovered in the task itself. The way to connect with it is to rest the attention fully with the task in hand. It does not arise in my desire to get the job done quickly, to enjoy the fruits of it, or to move on to something else. Those things should not be dictating the way the task is done. Surely the task itself should dictate the way the task is done. Thinking of attention in a broader context, the Roman philosopher Seneca wrote that it is generally agreed that no activity can be successfully pursued by an individual who is preoccupied. 
since the mind, when distracted, absorbs nothing deeply. Living is the least important activity of the preoccupied man. And he goes on to say that the preoccupied find life very short, and they become aware of it only when it is over. So they say things like, where did that year go? It seems like only yesterday when I was getting ready for Christmas last year. And here we are again. Well, to be preoccupied, to be occupied before the fact, to be busy with the dream of something that isn't happening while ignoring what is happening, well, it's first of all, it's almost insane when you really consider it. But it is to sacrifice what is true and real for what is not real. With regard to the mind, being preoccupied robs us of our power and freedom. In addition, Seneca saw being preoccupied as the basis of procrastination, something which he describes as the boast of foresight. How do you know you'll be able to do anything tomorrow? He says, putting things off is the biggest waste of life. It snatches away each day as it comes and denies us the present by promising the future. So, development of the power of attention is critical to having a full and happy life and the experience of freedom in the present moment. Indeed, Shankaracharya said in 1980 that the main feature of the discipline is the application of attention. The use of the power to attend any work, physical, devotional or rational. Now, when setting out on some endeavour, it is very important to have a clear vision for it. I don't just get into my car and say, well, where will I drive to? I know where I want to go. And it is that knowledge that guides me. That, that makes sense? Well, here we are on this endeavour of life. Our vision is a source of guidance, energy and strength. So we could ask ourselves, what vision guides my life? On what is it based? And this relates directly to true discipline. Because that vision will guide us. With regard to true discipline, the wise tell us that the true purpose the ultimate vision for a human life is self-knowledge or self-realization. How could one ever say that the life was truly disciplined and simultaneously ignore its true purpose? The Shankaracharya tells us that fullness of discipline ultimately means being faithful in oneself. Who is this self to whom I must be faithful? 
When seeking the true knowledge, meditation is given by the wise as the master key to all measures and full realization. Meditation serves to cleanse and purify the heart and gives energy for further work. With meditation it becomes possible for the mind to fall still. With stillness the ability to attend improves and as the mind enjoys greater stillness the understanding grows along with the capacity to appreciate one's true nature. This inner stillness is an essential ingredient for true discipline. In fact, one could almost say it is true discipline. The English word disciple, which obviously is related to the word discipline, has at its roots the meaning to learn and also to teach. So a disciple is one who follows and one who teaches. Most of the time we do not think of ourselves as disciples. But that is not the case. We all follow something. What do you follow? By what are you led? Well, we can make a general statement about this. Essentially, we are led by the things that we take to be true. We quickly lose interest in the things we discover to be untrue. Isn't that right? So, most influential are the ideas we believe to be true about ourselves, about who and what we are. They influence all the decisions we make. They guide us and we follow them. If the ideas I hold about myself are not true, it means that the central basis for my decision-making and behavior is false, and therefore weak. On the other hand, what is true is firm, permanent, reliable, trustworthy in and by itself needs no external support. It is therefore easy to carry. The truth in it means that it can withstand any challenge because it is what actually is and it cannot be undone. True discipline in essence is to connect with this truth, not just of what is in front, but of what is within. My true self is always present, always free. And true discipline is that which leads us to this self-knowledge. It is when I act in faith with my true self that I become truly free. So if you are interested in freedom, in establishing this true discipline, what to do next? 
There is no need to wait for some idea of the perfect circumstances. We may think that we are undisciplined because we are weak. Perhaps the truth is that we feel weakness because we are undisciplined. So here's a list of possibilities, something you could try. Pick any one that seems attractive to you. But of these, the first of them is probably the most important. Turn to some practice which brings stillness to the mind and improves the powers of attention. And the chief among these is meditation. Become aware of how you are answering the question, Who am I? And seek the true answer. Ask yourself the question, What do I really want? What is the vision for my life? And as often as you can remember, check your present activity to see if it is bringing you closer or further away from this. Practice working with love and attention. If you have a list of things that you desire to be disciplined about, may just be in your head. Take another look at that. Ask yourself, why are those things on that list? Make sure that it is actually in your best interest. That it is about being true to yourself and not some ego trip, some ambition for self-improvement that has its root in criticism, comparison with others, or seeking of approval. Stop criticizing yourself and others. Adopt an attitude of love and care instead towards yourself and others. Become an observer of yourself, a knower of your own mind. And to understand this, that truth is at the heart of everything, including discipline. And bring to mind these words that true discipline simply means moving freely. And if you were to take only one quotation away with you this evening. Let it be that one. And let that repeat and let that sink in and let it be understood and let it be felt in practice indeed. True discipline simply means moving freely. So we can start now. That's it. Thank you very much.
Okay, ladies and gentlemen, any questions? Thanks for a wonderful lecture. It was delivered at a wonderful pace. That cost me a fortune, that comment, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> the question I have is, is there any time during a person's life here in which there is discipline there without, I don't know if I should say without effort or pure discipline there mm -hmm. where we don't have to approach it through meditation. Do you understand what I'm asking? I'm not quite sure, sure about not approaching it through meditation. Okay. But with regard to the, the first part of your question, yes. See, true discipline is not a lifelong practice. It's connected with your very nature. It's about falling still. It's about connecting with the truth. And simply following that truth. So you don't have to make any efforts with regard to creating truth or creating a new self. It is simply a matter of connecting with that. So in that sense, true discipline is actually there and ever available. Would you like to say something else? Yes, but when we're young, are we aware of that? more aware of it? Certainly young children don't make efforts to be disciplined and they're very young and yet we love them to bits and we don't see anything wrong with what they do. So they are connected, still connected with their true nature. So at that stage, if that's the stage you're asking about, yes, it's effortless for them. Their behavior is natural, simple. It's, there's no calculation involved. And it's spontaneous, it's free. They don't care very much how they look. They're not worried about habits. They're just themselves. So, at that stage, yes, it's perfectly natural. And again, Jesus did say, unless you become as little children, you cannot enter the kingdom. So that is the direction.
Now your question was about the meditation. Meditation is needed because of this artificial nature that we have placed over our true nature. And what it does is it, it cuts through that to allow that inner nature to shine. So it purifies the heart, cleanses the heart. And as such then it is a great aid to true discipline. Did you have something else in mind when you asked that question or no, does that address no, it? That's fine, thank you. Mm -hmm. Children don't need to meditate. When you say children you mean at what age? Zero to ten. Well I know within the school of philosophy the practice is that children are offered meditation at the age of ten. Thank you. Hello there. I suppose I'm kind of just trying to put it together as well, in a sense. Maybe to recap, my understanding then that discipline in this sense is essentially being true to yourself. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. And I suppose I'm trying to understand then the general definition and common usage of discipline which we have in relation to that and how it's sort of gone so skewy because to be true to ourself is definitely, well through my understanding, a very freeing thing. Absolutely. Well, there has been in general a loss of knowledge or a loss of access to this fine knowledge about the truth, about the self, about yourself, about myself. If there wasn't, there wouldn't be a need for a school and for classes and for practice. This knowledge does seem to have been lost in general. And when we lose contact with that inner truth, then in effect all bets are off. Almost anything can happen. And you will get this loss of connection with the real meaning of things and the, the inner strength and stillness and beauty and understanding that comes with that. So it's merely ignorance, it's not malicious, generally. It's just merely this ignorance of the truth about myself that is at the root of all of that. That is why school does focus so much on that as the starting point for so many things. It is the, it's the fundamental, it's the basis of the work. And once that is in place, then the life can flower in whatever direction it needs to. And it will be different for each of us. But with that fundamental in place. Sorry, 
Fundamental is the discipline, is that right? Is the truth, the truth about myself. What I'm saying is that the loss of that knowledge yeah. is what gives us all these skewed ideas about things. There probably is a sense of the discipline as we use it, in general sense, because as we've moved away from the early childhood where it was so natural and so much a part of our lives, and you know, you move on, it is a type of discipline in your mindset, in how you will now choose to move and live, because you've got to discipline yourself away from your habits or and if it's through the practice of meditation or whatever it is that you're going to do so that you can actually find your true self. Mm -hmm. It's interesting, if you remember that quotation from the Shankaracharya that we used there during the talk, that he ultimately didn't, he didn't speak about disciplining oneself away from habits per se. As, that's not the ultimate. You might have to start there to rescue a particular situation, perhaps. But what he spoke about was, well, let me find the quotation again. It is up to the individual to decide once and for all that he is going to love only the truth and leave the rest. So as a way of addressing habit, that goes one level up again from just battling it or trying to put in a better one. First, appreciate the truth. And then go for that. Whatever that entails. And that takes care of the habit. He describes habit as useless in this context. In that going for the truth, that's where the, the true discipline lies. Anybody else? Thank you. It was actually the same topic as the lady there spoken. So that just led me on to think of how unfortunate our interpretation of the meaning of words can, in other words, we do tend to consider discipline to be control and we exercise that with children so early so we say he's well disciplined or under control and lose sight of what it should be which is to find the truth or true essence and a lot of it is just in how we interpret the actual word discipline being control and it just it seems sad that we should we should start to do that with children as young as five or six, mm -hmm. with control and not truth or true discipline. In general, they're probably lucky to get to five or six without that. There's a very good parenting course that the School of Philosophy runs. Some people here are familiar with that? Yeah. And in that, it is recommended that up to the age of five, that the child is treated with love only, no disciplining at all. Get some very interesting reactions to that on that course, but it does have a significant effect.
I've used it myself in my own situation with my youngest child. I didn't hear it before. <laughs> and she is the freest, happiest individual I know. She's nine now and she is extraordinarily pleased with herself. Her sister remarks, how does she love herself so much? And it's not in a big-headed way. She, she thinks it's perfectly natural that all her friends love her. I'm convinced that this different approach, which was used early on, had a significant effect for her. It does work, it is effective. Yeah, because a lot of the time it's controlled to to suit our needs, not necessarily for the betterment of the child. Absolutely. That's the danger of this idea of discipline as an imposition. It's not for the sake of the other. So it lacks love. And if it lacks love, then you've really robbed it of its main source of power, of all its potential. Just it's trying to focus more on the characteristics of a person with good discipline. Do you know what I mean? We can recognize it in a child. And it's just sort of following on from that is how you mentioned there that good practice as a way to obtain good discipline. How would you, let's say, looking for a role model, sort of basically are looking at characteristics of a role model that would help you identifying with the rewards rather than just truth, happiness and bliss. That's a lovely, <laughs> lovely rhyme about saying that, but to actually to identify it better so that we to strive for it. Because like all habits, we fall into bad habits after a while. It seems to be with all effort to try and move forward and into discipline that uh, it seems to fall down through natural failings of the body. Right. Ultimately, it's best to become your own teacher. But it is useful to find, and very important to find, inspiration. So what you're looking for is somebody who lives by the truth, who strives for it. You don't necessarily have to go outside of your own area to do that. I mean, there can be this idea that you have to look to the international stage or world figures, and certainly you will, you will find them there, and the same names are mentioned regularly. You have Mother Teresa, you have people who make great sacrifices in the name of what they see as truth. So Mother Teresa's vision, certainly it worked out as helping the poor, but her vision, in the literal sense, we want to take it that way for a moment, was that she saw Christ in everyone, the statement of truth. And then, whatever she did just flowed from that. That was her explanation of it. A quotation here. If you're looking around to see if you can recognize this true discipline, People with the true discipline 
come out of the mob and take leadership, to take a, an extract from a quotation here, they are confident, never disturbed, have a balanced disposition and patience, and are always involved in doing good. This aspect of stillness would need to be present. That's often a sign. With regard to role models, it's always worth considering that maybe you should decide to be a role model. Lead the way. When you become more conscious of the whole thing, you recognize these people in your own company, in your own environment. Your yes. Own. Does that answer yeah, it does, your question? Yeah, yeah, it does. Yes, okay. And the asking of the question, sometimes the answer when it comes to you. That's, it. That's a sign of actually some true discipline there. Yeah. <laughs> this gentleman here in the right. Yeah, it was a, a question on rhythm and the matching of the natural rhythm with the daily life. Mm -hmm. I was reminded of, I didn't match the rhythm of my dinner this evening because I wanted to get here. Yes. And one sets out a plan, which is always an estimate and wrong, but one sees when having duties and requirements, like you needed to be here at a particular time because we all depended on you and Sometimes I see a rhythm as an absorption and maybe a forgetting of time that occurs when one connects like that. And it's a matter of how one balances one against the other. Well, maybe you missed your dinner because of something else that happened earlier in the day. It might not have been the need to get here. <laughs> There's a... You know, I got the dinner, it's just the pace at which I got it. <laughs> uh, that's the boy, you see, you, you, you got your priorities right. See, there may not be a balancing act to be done. Sometimes the idea of a balance can be mistaken. You don't need a particular balance of helpful and unhelpful things in your life. You don't need sort of a balance of good food and, say, poor food <laughs> in order to have health in the body. Like, there's no sense of balance, shall we say, in that statement that I read out earlier. Decide once and for all that you're going to love only truth and leave the rest. Not, you know, just have a little bit of the rest, just for balance. But it's 100%. So, when you're thinking about rhythm, rhythm isn't, isn't that absorption that you speak of. It's connected with the very nature of the thing itself. When you see that rhythm and connect that rhythm, you, you can begin to see the beauty in a thing. I used to drive up to Dublin and drive along the canal, regularly, shall we say, and I would be driving along by the canal around half past six. And half of Dublin seems to be out jogging at that time. 
and you see all these different expressions on the faces, you know. Some look extremely uncomfortable. You'll be familiar with this. But every now and then, somebody comes along, and you see somebody, and it's just beautiful to watch. They've connected, they've got the rhythm, and it just looks beautiful. And you can see it's all happening with ease, and it's light, and you can see there's enjoyment. So it's not an absorption, it's not a loss of contact with what's real. In that sense, it's actually a connection with what is actually there and real. Do you want to say anything else, or does that...? Yeah, it's like the other gentleman there, I, I think it gave me time to figure it out for myself as well, and that I just figured out it's probably my own concept of what finished is, that is the problem, that I, I intended to finish what was on the plate. Right. And, That's and a that very it, common mistake with regard to food. <laughs> and in every job you do, you have this idea of when it will be finished, and you, you're striving to get there, whereas if you can do the bit you're doing and leave it, whatever it is, uh, then it will probably be there when you come back. I think if it's where you draw the line and finish. <laughs> now maybe the dinner will be gone, I don't know. <laughs> maybe it will be there when you come back. My boss talks about the bin fairies that come and empty the bin in his office. Uh, so it's not always there. Sometimes other people do it. But that idea of connecting with the natural rhythm of the task Say, in eating, how would you connect with that in eating? It's not, you know, how often your fork goes from the plate to your mouth. But how do you think you would connect with that, with the proper discipline for eating? You would enjoy it, absolutely. And in order to enjoy it, you need to taste it, exactly. Taste. Did you find this evening when you were gulping your dinner that you tasted, it tasted really well, that you enjoyed the taste of every morsel? No. Right. Taste. Connect with the taste. Let that guide the eating. Yeah. It's there. It's, it's actually in the thing itself. And you put your finger on it there, this idea that we have about when a thing is finished. And it's coming from in here. It's not coming from what's actually real out here. It's some idea I have in here that I impose on the task or on the moment, a demand even that I place on the creation that it fit this model that I have in my head, which is going completely away from the true discipline, actually. So yeah, that's, that's it exactly. It's that idea. I know how this should be. Yeah, and, and there will be something else to follow, so we're never finished till we're... Yeah, just finally, what was in the fork couldn't be described as a morsel each time. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. I believe you. Another question. Just on the question, you spoke of discipline and habit. 
And I'm just wondering where routine falls in with that. The word routine, sometimes I think I mix up routine with habit or how routine is helpful for discipline. Just to say something on that. Routine is very helpful, perhaps at the beginning. And that would mean for all of us, I would imagine. Certainly for me. Routine is very helpful. Ultimately, though, for true discipline, the routine is dependent on something, isn't it? It's, it's doing a particular thing or being in a particular place at, let's say, the same time each day or roughly the same time. But if there's a dependence on that, then it's not free. So, with true discipline, or in freedom, well, it may look from the outside that there is a routine there. Or perhaps there may not be a routine. True discipline would not be dependent on that. But there would be freedom to do those things at the same time each day if that was what was needed. True discipline is not a set of rules that you follow. That isn't enough. But it might be very useful to get started, to get out of a particular situation. But ultimately, that isn't free in and of itself. If I have to follow these rules, it's to go for the truth. And then whatever that means in the situation, whatever that means in terms of making an appropriate response to that particular situation, it might be completely different. The next time you meet that situation, the response might be completely different. It might not be guided by a set of rules. So it's very simple, very free. It arises in the moment. There's always stillness. There's always love compassion and this light is not a burden ultimately it's not a burden in its true form okay that helps yeah. thank mm. you you were talking about habits I got the impression that you were saying that habit wasn't a very good thing I was thinking the light about good habits and good habits you know mm -hmm. I got the impression that you were kind of saying Really, habit was mentioned in the context that when we're talking about being disciplined about something or other, and that we want to change some behavior, that we often quote habit as being the obstacle. Isn't that right? So the habit kicked in, I, I wanted to do this, but it's, it's my habitual way to do it the other way. And that's really why habit was mentioned, because so many people mention habit as an obstacle to what they see as a disciplined life. I have two questions. 
interesting thing how to understand that because it is a good habit and that's fine yeah then by all means that's not a problem if we look though to, to the highest level of, of consideration of discipline uh, it was mentioned in the talk but I, I maybe explain the point again that true discipline leads to freedom so any habit insofar as it is mechanical mechanical isn't really free. It's not really a free uh, a state of freedom. Does that make sense? That the response is from habit rather than arising from the need of the moment, rather than being fresh and spontaneous. It is just what I habitually do in this situation. So there's no suggestion that good habits have to be dropped are changed at all. No, that, that wasn't the implication. Um, Mr. Speaker, uh, last night I was trying to encourage people to come to philosophy and to come tonight in particular. And from this lady who has recently retired as a school teacher, when she heard it was about discipline, and she said, I'm sick of discipline. So my question is, why do we look on it as a chore? Why do we look on discipline as a chore? Well, we do have this view of it as an imposition from outside. That, I think, is the key point. So, for that lady, uh, I don't know, but let's just imagine that what she experienced as discipline was having to get up because there's an expectation that she's got to be uh, in school on time. <laughs> and it's, it's interesting to, to hear that from teachers who probably have many times said to students that they need to be, <laughs> as, you, know, you have to be in school on time, and that the same response is happening here, that, you know, I have to be uh, there on time. So there seems to be a sound there, a suggestion of having to of an imposition from outside. So viewing discipline in that way does really make it a chore, doesn't it? I mean, it's, it's doing something to satisfy somebody else, and we're not always that interested in that. I, I think that's at the core of it. Do you want to say anything else? Or does that help? Uh, does that... I presume other people in the room might consider discipline a chore also. I mean, we view it that way, you know, as opposed to liberation. Yes. We're effective teachers. Uh, without discipline, uh, the school has to run. So I can see where it's needed. Absolutely. Well, and, there, and there is no suggestion that there shouldn't be a structure. But true discipline, that what we're talking about here tonight, is something that comes from inside. There are these structures, and we choose to follow them or we don't, but at the level that we're speaking about here, we're speaking about discipline as something that is inner. It is like a strength that allows one to participate fully, but still be free. Yeah. 
This one in here. Sorry, back you to you in a moment. You don't differentiate at all between your own self-discipline and the discipline that society imposes upon you, or mm -hmm. disciplines that society imposes on you. Surely there's a vast difference between the two. If I can just be clear, you're talking about self-discipline and what society imposes on you. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. Now, ultimately, what is imposed is not being regarded as, in this context, as true discipline. It is imposed. An imposition of control from the outside. There's no freedom. Certainly there's a lack of a sense of freedom in that, in, in the idea of imposition. Now, funnily enough, there can also be a lack of freedom in what we often call self-discipline. It can be very restrictive and small. It can be based on some idea about myself that I don't measure up in some way and I need to make a change. And there can be a lot of pressure applied by myself on myself. And it's, it's not a pleasant experience, is it? I mean, I assume we would all have that kind of experience of, of putting ourselves under that kind of pressure. Now, this is where I think the idea of treating oneself with love and care is very useful. That when we look at discipline, we have our best interests at heart, or what is our true best interest at heart. Not measuring up to some appearance or some expectation that arises out there or within, as you say, within society, or some expectation there is here of fitting in or being part of something. True discipline has a much higher, the way we're speaking about it tonight, that has a higher goal, really. It is true self-knowledge and freedom. So it does quite transcend all of those other things. Society must run. So we would acknowledge the need to, to drive on the right side of the road and do all those things. And you can say that those are disciplines imposed by society. Uh, but within all that, this approach of true discipline, of putting the truth first, can allow all of that to happen and allow one to participate fully in it without the sense of loss of freedom. Do you want to say anything else? Does that, does that address your question? Well, that's, that's reasonable enough. Yeah. Mm. I'd like to thank you very much for coming to the audience and uh, thank you very much for your research and what was uh, the most uh, I think enlightening uh, talk here. Tonight. You're very kind, thank you. It has uh, shifted, I think, uh, our perception of, uh, and our definition of what uh, discipline was. Uh, mm -hmm. Refining it and redefining it. Uh, I think very negative one that we have had uh, into seeing discipline as much more positive um, uh, uh, issue altogether. For me, and I may be misunderstanding you, uh, 
I would have heard you linking the discipline to major concepts like, let's say, love and uh, freedom and truth. Now, for me, then, what you're doing with discipline is more or less a context. It's, it's a mental framework. It's, it's, it's the personal correct approach towards achieving those uh, concepts uh, in, in, in life. And by having this approach, this disciplined approach, which is very positive and liberating, you are able to achieve love and fulfillment and happiness because you have stripped away what has been getting in the way, what has been preoccupying us to allow us to, to, to get uh, through. I'm just wondering how, if I'm listening to you correctly, how perhaps that we might uh, in our own lives then continue to change this idea of a discipline for ourselves in daily practice so that we become much more positively disciplined and able to achieve the true ends of a human existence. Well the key thing is the, or one key, is the application of reason. In fact, you could say that when I am being undisciplined, I'm being unreasonable. In one way, it can be said very simply, though it might belie the difficulty we experience with discipline. But it is worth stating that the understanding of true discipline can be quite simple. It could be said that it is simply to put the truth first, always. Not a simple sort of blurting out of the facts now, but a real, a real seeking for the truth and a coming to understand it and a coming into the presence of truth and living by that and responding from that. In terms of putting all those things in place, it is possible to try and hit all those ideas one by one, take those concepts, as you say, and, and try and hit them all one by one in sequence. But a simpler way would be to simply decide to put the truth first, always and then just follow that. Thank you. Is that me? Very good. Okay. Okay, what else? Thank you, Leonard. I really enjoyed it because for me personally, I feel as if you've opened up a horizon for me. I don't consider myself disciplined. I didn't. But now I realize that one can apply it in such a different way now mm -hmm. that you can gain by it. As you say, give it love, give it all you've got, and it's bound to be better. Yeah. I really enjoy it. Thank you. Very good, you're very kind. Well, and, and this, this is the key. It, it's, it, it is that simple, a change of view, a change of perspective kind of a very significant effect, and, and that's the power of, of truth. It really is. Very good. What else? 
when you're a little disciplined, yeah. you're far happier. Yeah. Frustration, rushing, forgetting is eliminated. Yes. And you approach it in a different way. Yes. You're calm and health-wise you're even better. Yes. Absolutely. You are. You remind me there of an interesting quotation here. Lots of quotations I didn't use. From Julie Andrews. Some people regard discipline as a chore. For me, it's a kind of order that sets me free to fly. Is that how she managed to do Mary Poppins? <laughs> Could be. <laughs> Very disciplined performance, all right. And that is the difference. It, it can bring order and freedom. Yes. Anything else? The main thing I've learned is about quietening the mind. Yes. That's been hugely beneficial. Now, for some time, I, I have instituted discipline in my life, perhaps not very effectively, but I'm always in time. I always keep appointments, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And since I've come here, I've eliminated a lot of, or probably all of the clutter, and it's been hugely energizing. Yes. Now, and what you said tonight, I have forgotten it already, but it is at a lower level, it'll, it'll surface. Mm -hmm. I have a, fa a faulty memory, I don't remember very well. <laughs> <But> <laughs> You're, you you have good company there. It's in there, Yes. and it'll come again, I'll work on it. Yes. You know, so it's not lost. Yeah. So that's all I have to say. Very good. I, I'm, I'm delighted, sorry, uh, pardon. I'm delighted <laughs> I came anyway. Very good. Yeah, well it is true what you say that Removal of the clutter, and you point to your head, the mental activity, the excess mental activity, yeah. has a major effect on energy. Mm. Yes. Yeah, I, I've been well deficient in that area. It's, it's just like Piccadilly Circus. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll I mean, you, you, you just wouldn't believe it. Yeah. Well, actually, you'd be surprised. I think we all would, because it is a common experience that the mind suffers from excess movement mm. and there is a need to bring it to stillness and there is a need for it to enjoy stillness. The mind enjoys stillness, it thrives on stillness, it works best yes. when it's still. Yeah. I go along with that. Yeah. Now, here we are doing micro breaks. Yes. I do them as often as I, as I can. Sometimes I just forget I, I always do them at least once a day. But sometimes I do them several times a day, mm -hmm. and I just find them great. Yes. And then I work on this, all this rubbish in here. As a matter of fact, I know since I've started here, if I could sell the television. Very good. I, I, Very good. It irritates me, no end. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and Sky really drives me. <laughs> 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 I, I, I told them before, but I'll be telling them again. But I'll, I'll be telling them again. 
joining them very positively. Very good. Take it out, lads, or, 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 yeah. or not, I'm not joining up again. Yeah. Absolute rubbish. Yeah. So there you are. Well, it's very good. It sounds like there is a real touch of, of discipline coming into the life there. Yeah. Not that there wasn't there before. Yeah, it's, it's, I've been disciplined for a few years, but not very effectively. Yeah. Working. This, yeah, it's interesting that stillness and the experience of stillness can bring that kind of fulfillment. It's very useful to be content with one's own company. Isn't it? And not to constantly need the stimulation of a, whether it's a TV or a, some kind of distraction or entertainment, which really is, is, is something we use to avoid being with ourselves. So there you are, over and out. Thank you. And thank you very much. Very good. This gentleman here. Just on the idea that we have had of the negative discipline and the punishment and the very positive discipline and we've had a, a, um, a kind of a comment here in relation to a teacher seeing uh, not being here tonight perhaps seeing discipline in a negative way again suppose you are minister for justice of the country uh, yourself and you have um, a certain percentage of population who by their activity are uh, preventing society from continuing from living normally mm -hmm. and are a danger to other citizens and on a much lesser scale you do have even in the classroom you have a, a, a number of students who will prevent the educational process from taking place what guidelines or kind of or characteristics then would you might you put into a system of what we would call uh, positive discipline since you've said that the more or less the punishment uh, fails in the end hmm. well first of all it is I think the general experience is that punishment on its own is not effective like if it was and we've been applying it for so long we'd all be delighted with its results now. We'd have a really, we'd have a great society. But that's generally not the impression that people have of it, that it's worked. And then the solution that's being called for is, is often, let's have more of what hasn't been working, which doesn't make a lot of sense. So, What's the alternative? Well, one is to recognize this view of discipline as being internal, first of all. To recognize that each and every human being has a single common aim. The aim of all is the same. Everyone aims to be happy. Isn't that true? cannot imagine deliberately aiming to be unhappy. Well, nobody does. Not even the most disruptive student. It is very easy to just look at behavior and see behavior and deal with behavior. What really needs to happen, not just to confine it to the so-called disruptive, but to everybody, is that we need to begin to see the truth in what is in front of us, to see the self in each heart. And that is the foundation of all interactions, to start at that point. You see, when you look at somebody and see 
trouble, and what arises here is trouble. That is the basis for the interaction. That judgment is what colours the entire interaction, is it not? Yeah. And you know that if somebody meets you and they make some judgment of you which is negative, now you can sense that, can't you, in the voice and in the, the way they hold themselves or something. It, it comes out. And that becomes the basis of the interaction. And it's not helpful. How about starting on the basis that the self is standing in front? So that would be that would be the first thing to recognize that, and then based on that to go on to deal with the real needs of that individual. And I think we can be fairly sure, and even from our own experience, that criticism is not a real need of anybody. Nobody needs it. Our ostracization is not a real need. So I think the first thing is to really look and see what is there, what is really there. Then let the situation flow from that. And without that, there will always be the danger of just dealing with the surface. with the external. I, I just wonder, would the Dublin School of uh, uh, Philosophy and Economic Science uh, have a role, as we might think it would be, of um, formulating position papers that they might uh, send to Department of Justice, Department of Education, <laughs> <laughs> or anywhere else, because uh, there's some very uh, good basic thinking there. Well, Thank you. there are some people who have a lot of experience in education and have studied, in particular, the application of philosophy to education and would be much more knowledgeable than I on this. And the School of Philosophy does run an actual school, primary and secondary school, where these principles are enacted. And it's not that students in that school or those schools are somehow different from the normal population, in a sense, but they are met, they are met in a different way. Even though action can be as firm as it needs to be to deal with the situation. Thank you. Uh, thank you for your interesting and enlightening talk. I was wondering, in the context of true discipline, how can I motivate a student to be self-disciplined in the area of study? Right. Generally, for, for the very young, there is little point in offering reward in the distant future. Isn't that right? So, and for the very young, you don't have to go too far forward for it to be <laughs> very distant, perceived as very distant. And at the same time, there are consequences to actions. Now, it needs to be very individual, right? But 
in my limited experience with this in practice, what I find is that when there isn't study, there is knowledge that there should have been study. Right? That the child knows that he should have been studying and hasn't, and is not comfortable with the fact. Uh, you can have a discussion maybe and bring this out. There is knowledge that maybe there should have been study, but there wasn't. And what you can do is show that actually doing the work gives relief from that. Because that, that, there's a kind of pressure in that, in that and, and an unease. There is relief available from that. We can create a structure to make it easy. And you may have tried a lot of this already, but there's nothing particularly new about this. But a matter of agreeing what is going to be done and checking that it is done regularly. The key thing is that it's done with love. It seems to be very important that it's not done in the way that makes it sound like, if you do this, I'll be happy. Because not interested in that at all. Not really that interested in making me happy, <laughs> my children. So it cannot be something like that. Okay. It needs to be said with love, and you just gently point out the need. The thing is to see the need. Now, I found that just simply talking about it, but without that imposition of it's my desire that you study, right? If that's present, it's utterly futile. But as I say, in my limited experience, what I have found is that taking that out of it and really talking and really meeting the child where he's at has been enough. So I don't know if that's going to be of any help or not, but it may be worth a try. <laughs> Very good. Is there anything else? Somebody mentioned getting up in the morning. Uh, it just occurred to me that maybe I should read you this little extract with regard to getting up. It's from Marcus Aurelius. Anybody ever hear of Marcus Aurelius, the Roman Emperor? On rising unwillingly, remember this. I am getting up to do the things for which I exist, for which I was brought into this world. Or, have I been made for this, to lie in the bedclothes and keep myself warm? An interesting challenge to the mind at six o'clock in the morning on a frosty morning, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so, is there anything else? Okay. The disciplinarian at the door says it's time to stop. So, thank you all very much. Thank you.